this is Ruth Friedman, and I serve as the Maharat at Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to my weekly Parsha podcast, Life Imitates Torah. And this week we read Parshat Naso, which contains, amongst other things, the ordeal, the trial of the Sota, a truly unique case in the Torah, and I think in many ways a disturbing case or a curious case in the Torah. Um, as the Ramban says, this is the only example in the whole Torah of something that depends on a miracle. Right, specifically a mishpat, specifically a law, a sentencing that relies not on a legal system, not on the investigation of fact, but on a miracle. Right, it's something that it has an almost magical quality to it. So, what exactly is the sota? I want to spend a little time looking at the circumstances of this ritual and consider through that examination what exact purpose did it serve, both in the marriage and in broader society. So the Sota comes up in the fifth chapter of Bamidbar, and Hashem says to Moshe and says, okay, talk to the Israelite people, and gives two circumstances under which this procedure would be used. First, if a man's wife has gone astray and broken faith with him, meaning she's committed adultery, but she did it in secret and there was no witness. So that's the first circumstance, right? She, she cheated on him. She committed adultery, but it can't be proven through the normal legal channels. And so therefore she cannot be tried in a court of law, but he knows that she did it. Now that invites us to think one way about the Sota, but then it's very interesting because verse 14 introduces a second certain, a second set of circumstances. Now, verse 14 says that if this happens, but and a fit of jealousy, a ruach kin'ah comes over him and it gets all worked up, or the second circumstance, if ruach kin'ah, a fit of jealousy comes over him again, and he gets all worked up, even though she has not actually committed adultery. Now, in both of these cases, he should bring his wife to the Kohen with an offering, and then there is a whole procedure. Um, she, the woman, I want to point out that the wife is very passive in this process. Her husband brings her to the Kohen, and then the Kohen takes her and brings her forward before God, takes some holy water, mixes it with some of the earth from the floor of the tabernacle, and then stands her there, bears her head, parat roshay he messes up her hair or he uncovers her hair, um, and gets ready for this actual ritual. Now, what is this ritual? First, he has to make her swear to say that if you have not actually committed adultery, this water of bitterness may hamarim, hamarim, this water of bitterness and of cursing, then you'll be immune nothing, immune, nothing will happen to you. But if you have, in fact, committed adultery, then what's going to happen? God is going to cause um, your thigh to sag, that your thigh to fall, 
and your belly to distend. I'm reading the translation here. This is the JPS. Um, and that's really the punishment. And then she has to say, I mean, I mean, the only time she does anything remotely active in this entire section is when she says, I mean, I mean, but of course we know that that's not really so active of an action because she's simply affirming what he has said to her. And so then the Kohen writes these curses down in writing, rubs it off into this water, and then he, she has to drink this water. And of course, if she has committed adultery, then it's going to induce this bitterness and her belly will distend and her thigh will sag. And as the Torah says, not only that, she will come a curse among her people. But if she has not defiled herself, if she hasn't committed adultery, then she will be fine, Vinikta. Right? She'll be cleansed of this and Venizra'a Zara. She will be able to conceive, and there are a lot of different rabbinic opinions about exactly what that means. Probably the most literal is that she will be able to have children, I think, because the way we see that the way that women gain status, they gain validity, the way that they canceled shame in ancient societies was if they were able to bear children. So it's sort of saying, I think that she was put on display and humiliated but she will be rewarded for that experience. That experience will be countered by having more children, right? Because it kind of seems like the antidote to that shame. So as we said, the Ramban says, this relies like on a miracle. Um, it relies on a nace. It, 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 I think we can even say magic, that this water is somehow going to test or convey to us whether or not she did in fact commit adultery. Now, it seems like that because it's a miracle, this is not something that exists within the judicial system. The judicial system is one of either you're innocent or you're guilty. And in order to be convicted, in order to be found guilty, she would have needed warnings and, and, um, and witnesses, etc. Right? It seems like this is covering all that in-between area where either she's done it, but you can't prove it, or she hasn't done it, but he has some reason to suspect it. Or perhaps he's just jealous. And this is a way, it seems like on one level, this is a way about covering up that doubt, right? About investigating those areas where the legal system doesn't provide a mechanism to, to investigate further, to indict, to have any kind of punishments. And so this is a way of doing that. This is a way of dealing with that middle ground. But what I think is fascinating about this is that we have to take a step back and think, why is this even necessary in the first place? The man has other options. Now, one option in one extreme is if he actually gets, you know, he, he's so worked up or he suspects that she's committed adultery, he could divorce her. There's nothing wrong with a man divorcing his wife, provided that he, you know, pays the ketubah, etc. There's nothing wrong with that. He could just, if he's so upset, he could just get divorced. But this seems like a case where that's not what actually what he wants. This is a relationship. He still wants to be married to her, right? There's some sense of wanting to preserve this relationship. So we engage in this process. But I think that helps us get to the next point in thinking about something that's really important to highlight is the role of the word kin'ah, the role of the word jealousy. It is very, very prevalent in this ordeal. This is not about establishing the facts of what happened, because it's not the language the Torah uses. The Torah uses that it provides, it's a twofold process. It's not just that 
the man knows that his wife has committed adultery. It's that he knows that, going back to the beginning, let's say in verse 13, but then in 14, a fit of jealousy comes over him and he gets all worked up about his wife. And I think that we have to pay very close attention to that distinguishing that that way that the the Torah breaks up those two circumstances. The Torah is saying that it is possible that he could suspect that she has committed adultery, but put it aside. He could, in theory, ignore it. This circumstance does not come, this ritual does not come to punish her. It actually comes to abate his jealousy, to handle his jealousy. And that's why I think it's not part of the legal system. It's part of this sort of isolated, doubt-resolving, magical, miracle thing that happens not in the courts, but happens with the Kohen because it's not something that we're trying to establish legally. And that's why she's not punished legally. This is something that really, and many scholars have pointed this out. I just think it's important to really articulate it very, very carefully. This is something that's really not about her, even though of course she bears the brunt of the humiliation and the punishment, but it's really about him. It is about how he reacts to the unknown and leaves open room to suggest that there were other ways for him to deal with this problem. He could have just divorced her if the marriage was that bad, or he could have ignored, he could have set aside his feelings. But this is for when, no, jealousy comes over him and he gets all worked up about it. And that is when we provide him a mechanism of establishing the truth and I, I would imagine it's because other, otherwise, jealousy, we, we all know, is such a toxic uh, feeling that can destroy a relationship. I mean, you can't really ever, if someone's jealous of someone else, it's very, very hard to truly rein in that jealousy and set it aside and get rid of it forever. And so this is a way of recognizing, I think, that those types of feelings, if they linger, they will destroy, they will rip people apart. And so it's a way of providing him a way of knowing for sure. Now, there's one huge problem with everything I've just said, which is, okay, that's great for him, but what about this poor woman, right? He doesn't have to do anything. She's the one he has to, you know, who gets taken to the Kohen and the Kohen then humiliates her and makes her drink this water. It's a terrible process to go through, not to mention how on earth is she actually supposed to be able to go back to her husband at the end of this, right? Just to say, never mind, dear, like you got jealous, but it's okay, don't worry, let's go home, we'll have kids and we'll pretend like it never happened. Yeah, if we're trying to recognize the human nature of what jealousy does to a relationship, I think we also have to recognize the part of human nature that will take over, like that will affect her for the rest of her life and therefore affect the relationship. I don't really think you can have one without the other. We can't be so concerned for his mental being, well-being, while completely disregarding hers, because although, you know, the Torah is it's an ancient text and it doesn't have it doesn't treat men and women equally in our way of thinking about equal, at the same time it's a very human text and our religious texts going back, you know, from the way beginning value 
the couple and not just the man. The woman is not expected to just go along with anything. She actually has rights. She needs to be happy in a marriage. So I think that this really does present us a problem. And perhaps her being able to have a child afterwards if she's found innocent, it, it helps mitigate those feelings. But I have to think it doesn't really make them just go away. And that is what I wanted to, I think, makes the Mishnah at the very end of Sota so interesting. So you're going to learn all the Mishnah of Sota. And then you get to the very end of the Masachet. And we're told, actually, this ritual was stopped. And it was actually stopped pretty early in Jewish history. So the end of Mish the Mishnah says, when adulterers multiplied, the ceremony of the bitter water, meaning this ritual Sota, was stopped. And not just it was stopped, it was actually Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai who discontinued, who discontinued it. Right? The person who said, who enabled rabbinic Judaism to leave Jerusalem and to go establish yeshivot, to the person who imagined the, the restructuring of all of Jewish society in order to enable it to survive, he actually is the one who said, you know what? We're going to stop this entire ritual prescribed in the Torah. And why did he stop it? Because it is said in Hosea, I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry and your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery for they themselves, meaning the men, consort with lewd women. In other words, what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakaya is quoting Hosea to say is, I'm not going to punish the women when it's the men who are also committing the same acts, right? It takes two to tango, I think is what he's saying. And if women are committing adultery, well, they're committing adultery with men in society, right? Everyone's kind of sleeping with each other who they're not married to. And once that is true, we can no longer punish just the women. We have to punish the men as well. Now, there's no SOTA ritual prescribed for the man. So the option wasn't, okay, introduce a new one. It was like, let's just cancel this altogether. And I think that this is a really important rabbinic point to read together with the verses that we, the way that we read Sota just based on the shot alone. Because as we said, it's a profoundly uneven text in how it considers the emotional experience of the man versus the woman. The man gets a resolution, even if she's found guilty and it's an ugly resolution. He gets to put that jealousy aside. But what the, I think what Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai is saying is, is kind of calling him out on that and saying, in order for you to indulge your jealousy to the point where you're willing to bring your wife to the Kohen and to do this whole ritual, you better make sure that you are so innocent yourself that you haven't done anything wrong in order to warrant her going through this humiliating experience. And when it reached the point where we could no longer trust that about the men, when we knew that men were also sitting as well, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai said, you know what, we're done here. We are not gonna punish the women if the men are just as deserving as well. And so I think this is a really, really important way of reading these things together and just appreciating that the subtext, I think, of what he's saying, even though it's it's not necessarily like what you would super read just by reading this Mishnah on its surface, but to appreciate that sometimes we have to read the Torah coupled with rabbinic interpretation to appreciate the full picture 
of what the Torah is offering us here. And that the Torah is offering us a system that only works in genuinely rare circumstances and a system that doesn't want the man necessarily to actually go through this process. This suggests that he should just ignore his own feelings. If he's, you know, that, that first step is saying, can I live with this? Can I live with this doubt? And that, that only can exist in a pure society that is empty of shame and that is empty of sin. And if we live in a society in which we, we do have some sin, and before we accuse other people, we first need to engage in a process of self-reflection and make sure that we are as holy as we expect others to be. Shabbat shalom.